This episode of All the President's Minutes is brought to you by two One Heat Minute productions. The first, Increment Vice, 45 episodes, deep diving on Paul Thomas Anderson's 2014 masterpiece based off Thomas Pynchon's novel, Inherent Vice, called Increment Vice. Hosted by Travis Woods, produced by myself, Blake Howard, and narrated by the awesome Cat Corbett, takes... And a myriad of unbelievable guests through this sort of stoner noir masterpiece. Megan Abbott, Jordan Harper, Drew McWeeny, Matt Zoller-Zeitz, Walter Chaw, Karina Longworth, Ryan Johnson. Get listening. And if you're into fiction, it came from the deep. Maria Lewis, the host of our Josie and the Podcasts podcast, is here with her very own audiobook, It Came From The Deep, and an after show, co-hosted by myself. That's in its own feed. It Came From The Deep, Increment Vice, search them wherever you get your podcasts. Now, let's get to it. Lesson here, babe. You come at the king, you best not miss. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to All the President's Minutes. I'm your host, Blake Howard. 128 minutes into Robert Redford and Alan J. Pakula's 1976 masterpiece, All the President's Men. And we are leading in to the final deep throat scene of the movie an absolutely pivotal scene that so far with Deep Throat, he's been a cagey man, but right now he's much more candid because the situation has called for it. There are literally only 10 minutes to go in this entire film to credits, actually less, about nine minutes and 40 seconds. And it would be remiss of me not to get one of Australia's best voices I stumbled on the best way to describe her, literally talking to her before the show, which is kind of like the grand dame of Australian film criticism and writing. Um, and, and also such should an- Should I thank you for that? I don't I, I, know. I, I think you should because no, but also uh, in Australia, we have a couple of really big film festivals. One of them is the Melbourne International Film Festival that's been doing a great thing for, I don't know, about five or six years now called Critics Campus, where it's sort of fostering and, and, and uh, curating brilliant and new and diverse voices um, in film criticism in this country. And this person has been a huge part of that. They've also written for the biggest and probably one of the best culture sections, uh, despite the fact that it's under the Murdoch umbrella, sorry, um, (laughs) that has been curated around in the Australian um, has also written for uh, really like, uh, I mean, a bunch of different places, but uh, the Australian uh, film journal cinema papers uh, as well, uh, probably most notably. And has been a guest of One Heat Minute Productions before, was on One Heat Minute, and it feels so appropriate to get her along for all the President's Minutes. Philippa Hawker, thank you so much for being a part of the show. Oh, it's a pleasure, Blake. I'm very glad to be back. And, and at what a moment, too. Yeah. I, I mean, it's so funny. I love, love, love getting a message from a few of the guests in this part of the film that I've reached out to such as yourself. And it's like, wait, Blake, can you just confirm, is this a deep throat minute? Like, is this like, are we like, are we in the garage? with? Jay? Yes, we absolutely are. And it's really nice. And you know, we're, we're rolling to the end of this thing and we're rolling to the end of 2020 and this crazy year and this crazy world is, uh, is 
you know, I think we're, I think we're finally ready for the reprieve of getting to the end of this year. And, and this project has been insanely thrilling to be a part of, and it's great to have you along. Oh, very, very glad. And as, as you say, it is this extraordinary moment. Um, I'm sure we'll, we'll go into it in more detail now, but it's sort of almost, I mean, when I've, I've watched the film a couple of times in the last couple of days and you get to this, I mean, knowing that my moment, my, my <laughs> minute is coming, but also thinking, my God, um, it's such an extraordinary sort of, as you say, we're so close to the end and so many things have happened and gone right and gone wrong, but everything's gone wrong. And <laughs> yes. you realise, and I, I so much love, I, I know I can't talk too much about the ending, but I really love, one of the things I love about this film is the the extraordinary sort of, the minutiae, the detail, um, the yes. sort of tactility of it, the way everything's very tangible. I love how much paper is in this film. <laughs> but I also really love these these deep throat moments, as you say, where we kind of go down into the bowels of the earth, down into the underworld, into this sort of dark, mysterious place. And we never quite know what's going to happen there. I mean... It, and it's such a clever thing. I, when you've read the book, you, there, are, there are many more deep throat moments and you get more of a sense of, you know, who he is, well, not his identity, but just a bit more about how he operates as a human being. But in, in these, in the film, he's like a manifestation more than anything else. Yeah. He doesn't, he doesn't seem to occupy the same rules as everything else. And like you said, it's the, the aesthetics are doing all that heavy lifting for you, even unconsciously as a viewer, which is brilliant because like once Redford interacts with him, don't talk to me like this. And then he gets the note in the New York times and he has to put in the flag in the plot pot plan. It's, it's not just simply knocking on someone's door and hoping that you convince them to let you in. It's not just simply ringing around to some really reliable sources and them giving you information or at least being willing to sort of, uh, confirm something if you if you're on a hunch or if you're on if you if you, to keep you on the right track this guy has a manner about him that like you said there is a and i want to really underscore it is there is such an unpredictability even though like me seeing this movie countless times now i love the feeling that i get of it's unpredictable every time we're going to see him because in the especially contrasted with the two previous scenes that he's had lengthy scenes um he's he's kind of like gone i'm not giving you this information i'm not giving you this information and danced around facts and so like now at the moment of truth in many ways in the movie it's like what's he gonna do we don't know yeah, we don't know absolutely. no no idea whatsoever yeah i must admit i would find him i i if i were in any way in a position <laughs> as, as, a, as a journalist having to deal with this man i i could not cope yeah um it, it's so it's so frustrating um it's 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 someone who who wants to be a, you know it's really quite an interesting character study because he's someone who knows but wants to know what you know and will only confirm um in a way that he chooses and um yeah and you've and the, but the hilarious thing each scene has its different sort of opening and closing and in this case i, I love the way that um that he's for, that Redford's overslept, that yes. uh, Woodward's overslept, and so um, the, the absolute—it's sort of the the ultimate um, insult in a it's way. Your, it's your worst nightmare. Like uh, this yeah. thing gives me anxiety on a number of levels. The first is like, um, especially being a parent of two little ones. My worst nightmare is sleeping in, and especially in this entire project, just to go behind the scenes with you, Philippa, because we're in the same country. So it's really nice to be able to go same time, sim, same time zone, same country. You know, we can we can line up perfectly but there's been many shows and you know in a, in a 137 episodes where i'm like all right i need to set three alarms if i'm talking to someone yeah. at 5 a.m in la i need to you know there needs to be a four and alarm and then it's 4 20 and then a 4 45 just in case i sleep through multiple alarms because i'm kind of knackered so like that's it's your worst nightmare like it's this is the most important moment he sleeps through it um and there's one sort of like, I don't know if you've had, you had this experience, whether it's in school or in tertiary education, but there's something professorial, like, um, uh, you know, and, and not like as in telling a prophecy, but like being, uh, acting like a professor of like, you tell me what you know, and I'll tell you if you're on the right track. That makes you feel really small. Like, and I think that that's because you're like, 
oh God, I'm now put on the spot. And if I, if I don't have the right answer for me, I'm just going to get roasted rather than get eliminated with anything new. Mm. Although in some ways, I mean, it does, it does almost in a way echo the tech, the technique that the, the two of them evolve to get things confirmed by people. Yes. Um, you know, they, they've, it's sort of, it's almost as if they adapt it. Um, when people don't want to actually utter a name or technically give someone information, but it's, it's, you know, if they can offer it um, and, you know, get a nod or something. So it's, it's an interesting, like the whole idea of how, how we exchange information, how we tell people what we know, how, how, how can we, tell someone something without telling them like the non or, or, you know, of saying things without saying them or denying them. Um, but in fact saying that they're just this sort of complexity is there the whole time in the way information's exchanged and it, between people and, and uh, between people who don't know that they're sources, between people who know that they're sources, <laughs> all this sort of complex to and fro of, of, of language and exchange is, is sort of just there so often in the film. Well, let's, we, we have so much to talk about. I know we want to talk about your beginnings as a cadet journalist being uh, well, as as someone who lived as someone who lived with, lived with the li- not lived, a million miles away from this lived 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 with a typewriter and at least the tactile experience yes. number one we also got some um x-files topics to discuss and yes. a very a, a, a very interesting um a very interesting example of a kind of woodward slash uh deep throat relationship that happened in Australian politics in uh, regarding sort of international potential espionage and watching how the government uh, decided to, as our government often decides to do, which I try and bring up as often as I can on this show, um, to litigate journalists um, uh, and, and not, and not like people like insiders who are trying to bring out information that they think is for the good of the is in the best public interest and the government sort of siding with their institutions. So some great stuff that we're going to get up to. Philip and I are now going to watch it. It's 128 minutes into this film. So if you're watching it on the dial, it is going to be two hours and seven minutes on your dial up to two hours and eight minutes. Um, if you're watching HBO Max, for some reason, there's a 15 second ad. You might have to watch from two hours and seven minutes and 15 seconds up until two hours and eight minutes and 15 seconds. But Philip and I are going to watch this right now. You guys are going to listen along and then we're going to come back and we're going to talk about it. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. slip away. Yes. You've done worse than let Haldeman slip away, get people feeling sorry for him. I didn't think that was possible. In a conspiracy like this, you build from the outer edges and you go step by step. If you shoot too high and miss, everybody feels more secure. You put the investigation back months. Yes, we know that. And if we're wrong, we're resigning. There it is. Not yeah, things don't look good at that moment. Do they? <laughs> no, they don't. They really don't. As, especially because when 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 his face is illuminated in this glorious, I don't know, just like just barely spectral green hue, 
uh, he looks pissed off and the oh. letting and the letting hold them and slip away is a dagger to the heart and it feel it hurts it hurts for us as viewers and people who love this movie and you're like and especially also there's a sort of rich integrity that they imbue the woodwood of this movie with in redford and and perhaps it's the case of the woodwood at the time and the bernstein at the time which is if we're wrong we're resigned and it's just such a strange you know, it's a, it's sort of like an alternate timeline. This is the dark timeline. This is the the positive timeline. But it's a, yeah, it's a, it's a really interesting. It's a really interesting moment. And and again, the feeling sorry for them. Um, right mm-hmm. now, right right now, it's being people being able to twist things around. Um, that's the worst thing. It's the worst. I, there is that that line. I mean, it, I, the context is really different. But when he says, "If you shoot too high and miss." Um, it made, makes me think, you know, you come for the king, you best not miss <laughs> yes. Omar, Omar's line. Um, <laughs> but it is, I mean, it's said in a different different spirit, but it is that that whole idea that when you, if you, yeah, if, if you um, aim too high and fall short, it, it's it's over. You really, and yes. you really feel that. And just before that, when, when um, Woodward sort of has entered, as we see the third time in, you know, in a similar way, but when he walks away from the camera, kind of disappears into the black. It's almost like he's been swallowed up yes. completely. It's, it's quite a, um, an uncanny moment because um, there is something very um, theatrical um, but, and high stakes at the same time about these scenes. They're, they're hugely artificial, but they also feel they're, they're built up all the time as, you know, the guarantee people, because Deep Throat does get referred to every so often, apart from, you know, when he's not, when he appears. And there's always this notion that he, he is the ultimate reassurance, usually in some way, frustrating as he is, he, (laughs) he's the one that knows. And so this, this is devastating. And of course, we, I mean, we, we've, the previous scene has shown us um, that a, um, a reassurance in a in a way that that Bradley um, will back them, but um, it's still um, you know extraordinarily um, intense in this moment for us as viewers to just because you know we I think that's the fascinating thing I, I wonder what it will be like would be like for someone who hasn't sort of perhaps. Um, you know, quite the familiarity with historical events. Because for me, it works on, you know, even though I know exactly what happened and you'd feel the same over and over again watching it. But there's still this extraordinary moment of of sort of sinking feeling that you've got here. I I think you you hit the nail on the head, Philip. I just want to tag onto the back of it, which is for one of, for for the only time, um, and whether it's a direct corollary to the the end of the last scene that they had together, which yeah. is the car screeching out of there quickly at night. And, you know, from a very sort of non-paranoid person, it's like, I know how many times I've gotten home late from work and you jump in your car at a late night car park because, you know, especially watching a film and you just want to get out of there and you sort of screech out of a, a car park and you can sort of get out of there if it's just uh, someone a car screeching away doesn't necessarily mean it's someone, but in this movie, the entire paranoid energy means that that's that. So when Deep Throat is coming back, there's that moment that there's another car where you followed. Mm. We've seen in the lead up to these moments that Redford's perhaps tradecraft to get to Deep Throat hasn't necessarily been the best. And then you get the brilliance of the fact that the Holderman situation went down, which Obviously, his as we can see now, he's so furious by infuriated by, but just the call like over here, but there's no yeah. cigarette illumination. I think we're going to touch on that with X Files. You know, the cigarette smoking mm-hmm. man being you know literally cut from the same cloth. But in the other sequences, he's been able to light a cigarette to cue where he is in the car park or or in yeah. the same you know in the same spot. And here he says over here. And as you said so beautifully, like he literally is walking to be consumed. Like he's jumping off the deep end. There's no safety net of where this guy might be. And it is, there is this heightened sense of dread. And even once you've watched it over and over again, the tone of the whole movie is, is structured around these incredible moments where you're coming out of, I guess, what you would call like a tangible docudrama reality into mm. exactly what you said, which is like an underworld. And so I, I love that 
swallowing. And I think that on digital, sometimes it cheats you. Like, I don't know if you have, if you have a good enough screen or unless you're playing it like a Blu-ray, like there's kind of like this fake ghostly, like you can still see him for just that split second longer that maybe on a beautiful 35 miller print, a 35 millimeter print at a cinema, it wouldn't do the same thing, but I love watching him get consumed into total darkness because ultimately then when he turns up, you know, he actually gets to be bathed in a little bit more light than in the previous scenes and, and, and yes. deep throats the one who's, who's completely shrouded. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And, and of, and of course, um, and I'm sure, you know, you've, you've talked about this lots before, but the, the, the contrast with the newsroom too, with that sort of, yeah. you know, that, the kind of, hyper illuminated sort of um newsroom is really something too um that makes that 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 what the dark place you know where you know you're meant to be getting your truth but you're being it, it yes yeah, it, it's it's sort of like i don't know it's like like going to see the sphinx or something yeah um, or a sibyl you know it's like this sort of um a sort of mythological um space that absolutely mm-hmm. absolutely now let's let's jump out of the mythological and jump back into the highly illuminated space. Tell me how crazy it was to file a piece of culture writing on a goddamn typewriter. Like how oh. is it is it is it torture? Like I can't it must be why you can sort of think of a story now and like you know you know once you're focused on it like smash it out. But like tell me about the agony of like having to be so calculating with your words that a piece of typewriter filing wasn't going to be completely scribbled. I mean, there was, there were so many things obviously about um, the nature of journalism and research and inquiry and interviewing and uh, certain sort of things like that, which haven't changed at all. And some other things that have been utterly transformed, but yeah, the, the, I mean, I, it's a little bit different the, the, my experience of, you know, typing a story on a typewriter is a little bit different in that, um, they seem to be doing it on those quite longish pages, whereas yes. um, we had um, paragraph-sized pieces of paper, like oh, really? a, a, a green and yellow carbon. So each paragraph was a separate sheet of paper, um, and which you would then, um, you know, so you'd finish the story, you'd type your 10 paragraphs on these 10 slips of paper, um, and then tear them up. Um, uh, into a white, a green, and a yellow set of the same story, um, and um, so yes, yeah, so that that was you know, and you were pounding away on a typewriter when the, the, I mean the, the noise <laughs> of the newsroom is really great the way they've captured that. But yeah, it is interesting, and I think that that scene where you see um, uh, Bernstein go over and look at what um, I mean, physically pick up and look at um, what. Woodward has written is a, is a really lovely scene because you know you, you again you get that sense of the the words I mean paper from beginning to end is you know is in the film like you know that wonderful sort of opening scene with that that opening shot of the you know incredible close up of the typewriter yes um, he's smashing down and then of course the end which you'll talk about um, later on again paper and and um, just paper notes. Um, you know, piles of paper, stuff in cardboard boxes, evidence sort of, you know, having to go to the um, library and look at, you know, actual pieces of paper. <laughs> it's it's the, the sort of physicality of finding pieces of paper, whether they're, um, and, no, you know, your own notes, like taking notes on and getting a notebook out. These things must seem incredibly exotic, I would think, to, to, to people, you know, now. They see, they felt like that to me watching it. It's, it's, um, there's a Matt, you know, I'm, I'm loving that, that we're quoting some prestige TV in this chat. Um, the first being Omar, which is one of the, it's one of the, one of the best, uh, pulls so far of the whole series. So thank you for that. But there's a great, um, there's a great scene in Mad Men where mm. Don Draper uh, is talking about his like, in Greek, nostalgia literally means the pain from an old wound. It's a twinge in your heart, far more powerful than memory alone. And I think that, you know, I don't, I never got to, you know, I, I remember one of my, my mom like used to type on a word processor, which was like, you know, essentially like a glorified digital interface that 
pumped things out, you know, it looked exactly like a sort of a digital outlay of a typewriter, like a tiny, like you could only see like two or three lines of what you're actually writing before it sort of started to print it up. And that was like my earliest memory ever of, um, something like that. And that was in her job. She would type things up and send through faxes and, and whatnot. And I just, I like every bit of the paper in this, every, the entire concept of working and collaborating with people, especially writing where people can pick up what you've done and some copy editor is going to read it, scribble on it, give suggestions, get it to be retyped. Like that is just so thrilling to me. And it's just like, and, and and it hurts me and I wasn't even I wasn't even around when you did it, but it's just every time you watch it, you're like, oh, there's just something, there's just something about the that that tactile thing being a complete physical media person. Um, I just I can't get enough of it. Yeah, yeah, and of course, I mean, the, the other part of it, you know, is what they can't do too. With, I mean, imagine if they'd had the internet or, oh. or mobile phones. Um, I mean, many of the things. You know, like, and if, and for positives and negatives, some things would be harder. I mean, I, I think that you know, you can get you, they're all, I mean, be really interesting. I haven't, I've only sort of peripherally begun to sort of started to think about that. I'm sure there are lots of ways in which, I mean, obviously, you wouldn't have to ask who's Charles Colson, you just, you know, <laughs> you google it, phone. you, you, you go- wouldn't be exposed. You um, google it on the phone, you google yes, it on the as phone, you talking, as you yeah. were talking, yeah, yeah. Um, but um, there are, yeah, the, the the sort of. On the other hand, I I don't know, um, you know, people who people who are doing incredibly um, uh, researched and difficult stories these days are no doubt, um, you know, reading reports and going to people's houses and having covert meetings. I mean, I'm sure there are ways in which what we're looking at is in all the president's men is, is echoed by some of the sort of more um, dedicated um, deep dive journalists ferreting things out that, you know, that governments or businesses don't want them to know. But there are some ways in which this, yeah, this is a fascinating time capsule of, and I, and I love the way that the film um, absolutely embraces it. Yes. Yeah. It's, it's, um, you know, the proximity with which they created this film to the events that had actually occurred gives them so much mm. more luxury of, uh, you know, immediate references, you know, talking about, I've talked a little bit about the next project that we're doing, which is like Zodiac. Um, and so it's really exciting to, to be doing that, but everyone who made that film and I think Fincher and the screenwriter, James Vanderbilt and, and the entire team, although they were using Robert Graysmith's book as the key foundation, you know, they use movie movie researchers to go and like scrutinize and research different things and try and find alternate sources, even though the basis of the script was the Graysmith book, go find mm-hmm. the different sources, go speak to living witnesses, go try and do that because what they were trying to do is make sure that they were as rigorous and as authentic with all of the different voices. And then they've got to go back 30 years for that information. So the people just aren't around or people have passed away or people can't be found because they've moved out of the country. And so you have all these things where it just seems like it's impossible, but here you've got the shorthand of like immediately being able to like just sidestep back and the, you know, the Washington post newsroom exists and some of the people Although, who are of in course, there. They did recreate it completely. <laughs> yeah. They? But, yeah. Yeah. But yes, that's, yes. But, but yes, they had, they had a model. And they had a model. They were able to create a completely convincing alternative um, universe um, you know, yeah, yeah. So, so before we dive into, um, witness K, which mm-hmm. I think is a fun topic for us to talk about, you wanted to talk, uh, I, I, I believe you were, um, wanting to talk a little bit about X-Files, uh, because, oh, just, because just, it feels, it feels like in all these deep throat scenes and, and, and I'm always very mindful of new people that are joining us, you know, because of our great guests. So if this is your first time listening, welcome. It's almost impossible for me to talk uh, about to not talk about rather the Simpsons or the X Files mm-hmm. when I'm talking about deep throat scenes because as a younger person in Australia, especially like you know the cultural imperialism of the American you know uh, American culture in all of our television, but especially the Simpsons, I think most of my key cinephile references were first experienced on episodes of The Simpsons well before anything. Uh, that that I ever actually saw myself or could get my hands on or even knew the text that they came from. So it feels like only right that we we talk about, 
you know, the X-Files and we talk about Cigarette Smoking Man uh, with, uh, with oh, Deep Throat. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, it's funny, funny this year during COVID, um, I actually started my, with my daughter. Um, we started watching um, the X-Files. She, I mean, I was right. watching it again. I hadn't watched, I mean, she was watching it for the first time. So we were already sort of, we're in, we're, we're um, at season seven now. Um, so, I mean, I was thinking about, um, you know, Deep Throat um, anyway, even before <laughs> this came up. So, so yeah, I mean, the fact is that Deep Throat is the combination of Deep Throat and the cigarette smoking man <laughs> yeah. is, is, um, is kind of fascinating. Um, yeah, it's, 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 um, it, I, yeah. I, and I, th- I must say, I, I think looking at the X-Files, I kind of appreciate it more now as a, um, a work about, um, trust no one, you know, you, you have yeah. to you have to work it out for yourself. And it seems like a very, even though there are some pretty out there kind of conspiracy theories that it espouses, there's also this really fascinating scepticism about government, about the law and about having to, you know, establish everything. And, and even to think of Mulder and Scully as a bit of a Bernstein and Woodward double act. Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. You know, two, two complementary talents. Um, and they, and they, um, and they get to X and they get to also, you know, um, underscore the desire of that, you know, that the, the, there's the, the, the tension where the male and female then can become sexual um, in the show, you know, of those two different personalities, like a rigid skeptic and a believer, uh, et cetera. But I I, I think I completely agree. I think the thing that resonates, especially in sort of the first sort of four or five seasons at the X-Files is this brilliant, I think I I like to call it like the brilliant cynicism because even as crazy as Mulder is, and I want to believe, and he loves all these crazy little stories and their monster of the weeks, et cetera. uh, it's 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 a really brilliant examination of ha- critical thinking <laughs> like yes, it's like yeah. it's like two people that are thinking critically constantly but also from within the machinations of you know a, a government organization that purports to be helping you and it is always very very healthily critical about government organizations and that they're just controlled yeah. by people and just controlled by egos and there's a lot of external influences that are trying to, you know, touch them up. And and I think that that's why those early seasons, the X-Files are just divine. Yeah. I oh, know they're beautifully, beautifully sort of imagined and worked out. And, and there's a sort of lot, I mean, it, things do get a bit bizarre from time to time. <laughs> yeah. But there's that also this wonderful, really well thought out. I mean, I what just watching the, 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 the very first, um, episode the pilot you think oh my god they've you know with hindsight you realize you go back and you realize god that was so well worked out yes. there are so many um just that very first glimpse of the cigarette smoking man is like oh my you know you suddenly see how much they've already um put put there you know laid down for you and um yeah and i think that there's sort of it's interesting too in 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 all the president's men, the just the the different ways that the different attitudes towards knowledge and asking questions and getting answers that um, that the different techniques that that Bernstein and Wood would have they they and and they gradually do I think they learn a bit from each other. Um, Definitely. Definitely, Bernstein is the more kind of bumptious sort of. Um, <laughs> You know, he'll step in the door, he'll borrow a cigarette. I mean, the cigarette smoking, in fact, is quite a, like, you know, it becomes something that that um, uh, Woodward sort of is snooty about. But it turns out that it becomes a real, it, it's his way into the bookkeeper um, is to get a cigarette um, and from the from her sister. And, and, you know, there are sort of, there are. And, and Bernstein is never more, uh, he's the most Woodward in that scene. Absolutely, it's like and he's. It's like he has learned something that he's. He's. He's more. He, uh, you know. He. He. He behaves like. Yes. Yeah. Like. Like. Absolutely right. Yeah. And and yeah. and la- and later on, there's that unbelievable moment where Sally Aitken starts talk talking about the Canuck letter, and mm. Woodward like asks her a question, and when he asks her the question, it shocks Bernstein because it's almost like, did you say that or did I think it? You know, like, yes. he's like did, yeah. did he tell you yeah. that to go to bed with him? And you're like, 
whoa, where did that come yes. from? And it's but those then, mo- and, yeah, both those guys have those he moments. Works the way, he walks, it's really beautifully timed because um, Woodward kind of walks away, which or then Bernstein can't believe that, that. Why didn't he follow through? But in fact, it was the right way to do it. But yes. yeah, 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 no, they're, they're definitely just as you, yeah, you certainly see them um, learning from each other. Um, and, and that's really well done. And the added dimension is like, you know, I think this this film is so incredibly influential and powerful because of the economy of the storytelling and the focus. And here we're seeing, you know, you can sort of see the richness of Deep Throat's personality and his frustration with where they are. And but it does it can only go to a point, obviously, because we're you know, we're really only in a two hour thing and there's so much that's going on and there's so many players and they're really trying to maintain the the tight reigns on this story even though it's bouncing around and and creating a constellation out of the dots um as the very awesome tv critic ingu kang sort of coined that phrase on this show which i continue to use um i think that just one last thing to sort of close out our x-files chat is what's great about the cigarette smoking man is that his benevolent insights at the beginning of the x-files series means that he's always kind of like on their side he's a great he's a great person to sort of cut through and he's, he's very deep in, in the conspiratorial sort of, you know, world. But what's awesome is as the show evolves, his information becomes so much more deeply problematic because it's like, why is he giving you this information? And actually the show does a great thing, which this movie has absolutely no time to do, which is scrutinize the why, why does this person want to give you this information? Why do they want to do it? But he also does want to, I mean, he's also incredibly dangerous. I mean, like it's sort of, yes. he's incredibly dangerous as well. I mean, yes. he, 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 he's to be, I mean, yeah, he may occasionally, he may seem on their side. I mean, all of their, their inside people, it's the same, um, well, deep throat, not as much. I mean, he seems, seems more benign. The cigarette smoking man, obviously more malign and X, yeah. um, somewhere yes. in between and so there are they're all i mean we're pulling from jfk we're pulling from we're pulling it's, from uh yeah, we're it's all, yeah it's it's really it's it's really complicated i mean obviously yeah the cigarette smoking man is um oh yeah like extremely. he's definitely part deep throat part x i think that's it that you're, you're spot you're spot on there that that donald sutherland scene in in oliver stone's jfk may be one of the greatest you know seven or eight minutes of montage storytelling in american cinema especially in the 90s like it's so powerful and so i don't know intoxicating to watch over and over again it like really gets to the bottom of it it's it's phenomenal um but i do have to ask you you didn't um you, you, you asked me and, and I often correspond with my guests about different topics that we're going to think about or different stuff that we're going to cover and, and, and then we'll sort of let the conversation flow. But you, you brought something to my attention that I was so completely not familiar with that I spent time like researching and now I'm in like a level of disbelief and I'm so grateful for, to have you for exactly this reason because I'd love if you could tell the listeners, especially a stack of them who are listening internationally, about Bernard Colliery and Witness Bernard K. Bernard Colliery and Witness K. Yeah, yeah. Look, it's it's. I mean, I I kind of hesitate to. It's such a complex story that I certainly, you know, would. Prefer, I mean, I'd like to think I could just sort of give the gist. We'll do our best to, to give the gist. Give yeah. you a sense. I mean, what basically what it is is that 2004. Um, the Australian Secret Intelligence Service, ASIS, um, they pla- planted listening devices in a room um, next door to the Prime Minister um, of Timor-Leste's office. Yes. And the reason they did this, they sort of, they did it under the pretense that they're upgrading an office and they actually did it so that Australia um, could gain an advantage in negotiating with Timor-Leste about um, oil and gas fields in the Timor Gap. And this is a country that are, you know, newly independent in, you know, really vulnerable financially. And Australia did this um, and it became public knowledge. It was done um, uh, under the auspices of Foreign Minister Alexander Downer and, and, and it became public um, eight years ago when a, a senior intelligence officer who had 
been very uncomfortable about the operation actually asked for permission to talk to a lawyer about it. Yes. And since then, I mean, you know, if there's anything that I've left out, by all means. Yeah. Um, no, uh, I, I, I think you're spot on, but it's yeah. so, it's, it goes so much deeper into the machinations of the case, the different individual politicians that are involved and what that potentially has, uh, what ramifications that has. I think but Philip has definitely given a good, a thing, good appetite. And the thing about it is, absolutely, look, I mean, it's, it's a bugging, it's a, it's a clandestine operation against another country that, and that basically for the, you know, the benefit of oil companies yes. and both Labor and um, Liberal governments subsequently have acted um, in extreme um, you know, not in, in no positive way at all. The case has gone to The Hague. Um, yeah. Witness A and Bernard Collieri, his lawyer, um, who was once an attorney general for the ACT, I mean, quite a, you know, significant legal figure. Um, and uh, there have been sort of dirty tricks like um, refusing Witness K, who's the, the senior intelligence officer, you know, cancelling his passport so he can't go to The Hague to... Uh, to testify. And it, it, I think it's a story that has been written about. There have been various um, publications that have done their best to to get to the truth of it. Um, a lot of it's happened in secret. It's And it, and it yes. really is, uh, I mean, the lack of pu- public accountability and the secrecy is really distressing. And I think it's just, it's a story that's, that's it's still, it's still going. If, you know, perhaps we could, um, put some links to some stories. Yeah. Um, I, I, in, in the description of this show, I'll make sure that I grab the best links. I'll, I'll do the basic stuff first. Um, uh, and, and, you know, obviously the Wikipedia links, but then I'll make sure that there are actually individual stories that you can read. And exactly as you said, the crazier thing is that a story like this, um, is, is playing out in such a way where someone thought, especially in witness K thought that the best approach would be to, get permission to seek a lawyer because of how uncomfortable they were with the situation because they thought that it was in the best interest for the public to know about it or potentially thought we were breaking international law in doing so. Um, Mm. And that, that impulse, I guess, or integrity to do something right in that moment has meant that it's sort of gone a bit haywire. And and in in this country, when people have asked things, you know, we've discussed along the way on the show, like why doesn't Australia have as isn't having a a me too moment as much? Why, you know, what's, what's going on? We've been very careful um, in the process of this show to talk about, you know, there's a significant libel laws that are out there um, for different publications to face, for different individuals to face that, that are much more stringent than that of America because you know, and, and, and particularly when, you know, the Australian federal police is, you know, breaking into the offices of our national broadcaster to try and get, you know, journalists to reveal sources, it's starting to get pretty serious and a bit draconian mm. and, uh, and very, you know, for, for better or worse, the COVID-19 pandemic and all of the, you know, the, I guess the shift of focus to, you know, the health and well-being of our population and the, you know, trying to get, you know, trying to bolster the economy to keep us buoyant during this insane time um, has stopped some of that momentum. But there's definitely plenty of journalists who is also very fresh in their heads earlier from the year and even late last year where these sorts of things were happening. And yeah, it's a crazy, it's like the quintessential example. It's a crazy story. It's a, it's a really, it's a really significant story that um, it, and, and it really deserves to be more widely known, I think. And um, uh, I mean, a lot of, you know, I mean, there have been some very good journalism. I mean, I think that's one of the things that you sort of do ask yourself sometimes is the work is there, but, and people have put, you know, hours and hours and have worked incredibly hard and sources yes. have risked a great deal. But why has a particular story not um, transformed? And we, I think we're asking ourselves a lot ourselves that question a lot at this moment in time yes these stories have appeared they've been published why is there no and i think i mean i mean we can all think of a score of stories this year in in australia alone where we think to ourselves why why hasn't this made a difference why aren't people more outraged or why hasn't this outrage led to something more and um, you know, and it's I, look, and and I hate I hate to be glib about it because not definitely not for the witness K case, but it was something even as 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 recent um, as 
revelations about Australian military personnel committing murder um, in, yeah. in, in, in wartime. Uh, SAS soldiers murdered, I think the number is 29 people. And, you know, there's oh, a whole... 39. Oh, 30, 39, sorry, I mis- misspoke. 39 people. And there was a, a whole swathe of stories and incredible, like, you know, journalism done to sort of, to reveal that this had come out, to share this information widely. There was a PR campaign from the current administration in our country to like speak to the leaders of their countries and to preemptively apologize to make sure that it's not a bigger international incident than it could potentially be. And then Australian broadcast media especially that kind of like dominates our political conversation are running story after story of some Adelaide teen who's frustrated about being in lockdown for six days in COVID-19 and no one's covering (laughs) the SAS story and it's just like it's like it's like uh, what is going on why are we talking about one teenager in Adelaide when we should be talking about what is potentially a monstrous international incident about soldiers committing war crimes in another country and how we're going to have to fix that yeah I think I mean I I do think there has been quite a bit of coverage but um, I guess the question is um, and and obviously too I mean there were there are stories of intimidation and of, of whistleblowers and journalists in the process of, you know, the writing of these stories too. I mean, that, that certainly happened. Yes. But, um, yeah. Yeah. No, I think the, you know, the, the, the question I guess now is what, what, what will happens? happen next? What, what happens yeah, next? What, yeah. What, yeah. Yeah. I actually, one thing I just, I know I don't want to preempt your discussion of, of, you know, the ending of the film, but I mm-hmm. do, one of the things I do really like um, so much about all the president's men is the lack of fanfare and the absence of yes. applause. It is really, I mean, yeah, no, I will be, I do not want to, to go in there and um, talk about your, things your, that look, to happen. Philip, uh, I just want—I just want to tell you, you're—I'm giving you the—I am gracious, giving you the green light. For anyone who's seen on socials today, um, I announced the final minute, the 137th minute of this film. Um, I'm going to be joined by Jane Alexander, <gasps> the bookkeeper that herself. Is so exciting, the bookkeeper. That oh, it was such a wonderful actor as well. I mean, she what a, is. Yeah, uh, she's got uh, an extraordinary career and it's one of her, you know, that's, and it's a pivotal role. I mean, it's interesting, isn't it, with all the president's men, that there are some, I mean, she's the significant woman really, isn't she, in that film? She, I mean, she, oh. she is she's the woman and, uh, you know, she was an incredible stage actor. She did, then, you know, broke out and was Oscar nominated for, you know, saying the same performance she did in, on the stage, on the screen for the great white hope uh, alongside James Earl mm. Jones. And she's absolutely incredible in that movie. And I also think that it's like a travesty that she never won the award nor James Earl Jones for that matter yes. at that time. Yes. Um, she then comes into this movie. She completely knocks, you know, she knocks the movie out of the park. Like she's, she's in the yeah. definitive scene. Uh, John Borson, who's the real emotional axis of the film, isn't it? That's absolutely. Sort of, yeah. And so, uh, you know, um, for me, the great Alan Bakula has passed, you know, I spoke to associate producer, John Borston back at episode set, you know, way, way back um, in episode 75, uh, six, uh, you know, 75 and 76 minute, but it was a 76 episode. I spoke to John And it was in the beginning of that scene because, you know, for John, who was so close to Alan and later wrote a movie with him and things like that, he was like, this is the scene of the movie. This is the, the, this entire film in microcosm that, you know, there are real people uh, that are putting their lives at risk and putting their livelihood on the line and putting their morality ahead of any kind of political allegiance. um, And, and, and especially women, um, in doing that. And I think she's phenomenal. It's the most hypnotic scene. And I can tell everyone, I won't tell anyone about what we talk about because you guys can wait for that. Um, but I will just say I very rarely get starstruck and I'm still recovering uh, much um, after, yeah. after, after speaking with her because she's just uh, such a wonderful and generous and sharp lady. Oh, it's such a, it's a wonderful performance. And they, they shot it in the actual bookkeeper's they, sh- they, I, they, they this is what this is what i wasn't sure with jane she says she's not sure if it was exactly that house she said ah. it was definitely a house in maryland and okay. where, they, where they shot it like in washington where they shot it they like it was a house it was like a, not not a set um and and she uh 
it, and I, I don't, this is where I'm getting conflicting things. I think it may have been just like they, they, they found a house that looked identical to her house and then dressed it like Judith Hoback Miller's real house. It was the real bookkeeper in the film. And, and, and Jane does talk a little bit about that, but, um, but yeah, that, that, I, that's the value of doing something like this is to, to actually, um, to be able to nail that down and yeah, so you know, get the facts, follow the money, get the get facts. The facts. Yep. Philippa Hawker, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me on this uh, show. I love talking to you. It's just a pleasure all the time, all the time to talk to you. And uh, and look, um, you know, I, I I I said it right at the top, but I'm such a huge admirer of you and your work, and it's just awesome to chat to you again. And 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 I love even more that we got to throw in an Omar quote from you, uh, which is brim made my heart very full uh, oh, <laughs> in this, uh, in this episode. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks again, mate. That was the incredible Philippa Hawker, an amazing and kind of fixture of Australian culture writing, especially around films for many, many years. Uh, film and arts writer all over the place, based out of Melbourne. If you want to follow her on Twitter, it's at Philippix, which is P-H-I-L-I-P-P-I-C-S. That's the best place to find her. Um, again, a huge thank you to her for being on the show. Guys, thank you so much for listening to the show. If you could please follow rate subscribe review share the living daylights out of this show that's the major way you can help us if you also want to follow us you can do that at oneheatminute.com at atpm pod on twitter for myself one blake minute on both twitter and instagram and finally if you want to follow us along and get a little bit of extra stuff that's one heat minute is where you go on Patreon, where you get a bonus episode every week, me talking about different things, and for the upcoming project, Zodiac Chronicle, there's a bunch of bonus content coming around that show. Thank you so much for listening. We'll catch you on another episode, oh my god, very, very soon.